It's good to be with you and to have this opportunity. I want to thank uh, Pastor Ted and the elders for uh, allowing me to be a part of your worship here today and for next Sunday as well, Lord willing. Uh, it's always good to be here at First Alliance Church. Uh, First <laughs> you can tell I'm a little bit tired. We drove all the way from uh, North Carolina yesterday uh, on our way back from a little bit of R&R in Florida. So if, I'm a, if I miss a word now and then, you'll understand why. But it is a joy to be here at Sio Community Church. And we often look back and praise God for the months that we had with you and for the joy that it brought to our hearts uh, to see the church come together and uh, begin a new adventure with a new pastor and for God to continue to have his hand of blessing upon you. So uh, uh, it's just a great joy to be with you today. Well, turn with me to First Peter, please, chapter 4. And our text today is uh, beginning at verse 12 all the way down through verse 19, which I'll read a little bit later. I've entitled today's message, Always Through, Never Under. As I grow older, I'm beginning to appreciate more and more the saying by Wilson Misner, who said, Life is a tough proposition, and the first 100 years are the hardest. <laughs> uh, they certainly are. From the moment we're born until our final breath, pain and suffering and trials are our constant companion. And nothing can prepare us for life's devastating circumstances. Uh, life is sort of like a, a coat that doesn't quite fit. We're forever changing it. We're cinching up here and leaving out there and uh, hemming up here, letting it out. Life doesn't fit our plans, does it? And we exist in a continual state of maneuvering and shifting and adjusting and believing or doubting God. The author Philip Yancey addressed this situation in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? Listen to a few sentences that he wrote. Christians don't really know how to interpret pain. If you pin them against the wall in a dark, secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers, end quote. Well, that's what we think, but what does God say about our pain and our suffering and our trials? And for that answer, uh, I hope you have your Bibles open and uh, the text before you of 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 12. From the New American Standard, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, 
those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It's a challenging text, isn't it? In many different ways. But before we dig into it, I want to just give you a very quick uh, overview of this letter that Peter wrote, 1 Peter. There are three basic themes in the book of 1 Peter. Number one, the theme is salvation, all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 12 where he talks about the glory of our salvation, the inheritance that we have, the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And then he moves from the theme of salvation, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13, to submission to governments, to employees, as husbands, as wives, and in the body of Christ, how submission plays such a vital part in harmony, unity, and the progress and growth of God's work here on earth. And then that leads in chapter 3 and verse 13 to the final stretch in Peter's uh, thinking here, the theme of suffering. And that's what we're still dealing with in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 5. And he's going to address the whole area of how Christians respond to the world as it casts upon us their insults, what it means for us in general to be punished uh, by the world and they do not want to see us prosper. And I think Peter has arranged these three themes in the correct order. I say that because if we don't understand the glory of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone, well, we're probably not going to submit to his will, are we? We're going to look for another way. We're going to look for an escape route so we don't have to submit. And if we don't submit to that second area, the great second theme, then we're not going to do well in this final theme of suffering. We'll never suffer biblically. We'll never suffer properly. Because if we don't have that spirit of total resignation to a sovereign God who sits on Zion's hill and encourages us and uh, his will is, is, is going to be fulfilled in the earth, we will not suffer correctly or biblically. Now, we need to understand this. Because in today's world, there's a lot of preaching about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Uh, you know, we, we've got all those great promises in the Bible and the warm fuzzies and buzzies that go along with it about how we're going to su- succeed in everything we do. Uh, and, and so that preaching, however, is a distorted message of the gospel. Peter comes back and tells us the truth. He says, look, when God puts his hand upon you and brought you into salvation, paid in full the debt of your sin, and you received by faith Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, From that moment on, he is going to begin shaping you and molding you, maturing you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And part of that journey, part of that process is suffering and pain. Now, with that perspective, let's dig into this passage. And I think this is one of the most radical uh, as Christianity can get. And I think it's probably the most important summary of what God is doing in us and through us that we find in this letter of 1 Peter. Uh, it's a great text for us to, re- to know how to respond when there is suffering going on in our life. This is one of those passages that you can live in for months. Uh, I-, I always say, pray it into your heart. Uh, it- to do that, you may want to type it out or print it out and put it on your refrigerator door so you see it every day and you're reminded that 
God is really at the center and his plan is really at the center and his grace is really our hope. And as we respond to the things that happen around us and in us, God will be glorified and we will respond properly to the suffering that we're enduring. As I mentioned, I've titled this, Always Through, Never Under. And I think Peter is trying to get us into our heads and into our hearts that that's what God expects of us. We're going to go through tough times, but we're never to be under them. We're never to come to that point where we say, you know, I'm just giving up. I, I'm, I, this is the last. I'm turning my back on my faith and I'm walking away. It's similar to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, where he said, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It affirms what Isaiah wrote in chapter 43 and verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. There's one word that he repeats three times in that verse, those two verses, and that is the word through, 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 through the waters, through the rivers, through the fire. And we could take a bypass, but if we do, we're going to suffer more until we finally get through. And that's what God wants. He's, he's going to be with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to be with us through the rivers and the fires. Uh, and, and because we're going through those experiences that God allows in our life are going to make us more and more like Jesus himself. So what does Peter tell us about how we're to get through the pain and the suffering and the insults, the devastating circumstances that we're always maneuvering and shifting around in? What does he tell us about going through and never being under? Well, I hope you have an outline, and we're going to look at six things that are God-honoring responses when we go through times of trial and suffering. Number one, don't be surprised. He's saying here, look, it's coming. It's, it's a part of your life. Uh, don't think it's weird that you as a Christian have to face difficult situations. It's part of our territory. You can count on it, be ready for it, buck up, shape up, hang in there. You're going to have to face this. Be with, worth your salt. God is going to work on you. And there are three reasons why we should not be surprised when these kinds of things happen in our life. Number one, because God has not taken us out of a fallen world. God means for his children, once they've been born again through a living faith in Christ, to live in the middle of the harsh realities of a fallen world. It's all over the scriptures, the depiction of a world that's a real broken place, and you'll never escape the brokenness. You'll always feel the pain of that. Just because you're a child of God doesn't mean you'll always escape it. It's always going to be with you. And so God chooses for you to live in that brokenness so that you can be one of his lights on a hill that people can look to and find guidance in their suffering. Secondly, 
You will suffer because of your identification with Jesus as Lord of your life. You know, I, I always think of the three or four chapters in the Gospel of John we call the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, only hours before his arrest, Jesus has communion with his disciples, and then he begins teaching them about what's going to happen. And they're sitting there dumbfounded that this man who has been their anchor, uh, their source of life for three years, teaching and the miracles that they've seen is saying, I'm going to leave you. And where I'm going, you can't come with me. And in that discourse, he says, the world hated me and it's going to hate you. And I think they were shocked when they heard that because that's not what they expected. They thought a Messiah was going to reign in power and glory and they're going to be seated at the right and left hand of, of Jesus as he rules and reigns. They didn't expect this. The world's going to hate us? Listen, if you stand for Christ and you step out of the typical American philosophy about life, which is I rule my life, I am sufficient, I am autonomous, my will, my way. If you step out of that kind of living, your life will be perpetually offensive to people who live with that philosophy of life. You'll seem like an alien to them. You walk differently than they do. You think differently than they do. You obey a higher law than just the laws of the land. The, and you have an eternal hope because of what Christ has done in you and the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Some of you have probably faced rejection from family or friends because of your new life in Christ. But there's a third reason why we are not to be surprised, and that is God intends to use these difficulties to promote the continuance of his work of grace in our hearts. Uh, listen to these words again. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Notice those words, fiery trial, and notice the word test. They should immediately have you think of tempering metal. What it means is when you temper metal, you put it in a very, very hot fire until it's glowing red, and then you put it on an anvil and you beat it a little bit. Uh, that's the kind of fiery trial and testing that he's talking about here. And all of it means is that it's, it's inescapable. You must buy into that, that God has chosen you as part of your maturing in him to suffer. So it's not a sign of God's unfaithfulness to you or inattention to you. It's a sign of his inclusion of you in his great redemptive plan that encompasses this world and this time and the age to come. It's a sign of the operation of his grace. It's a sign of his unrelenting love, his transforming power at work in your life. Listen, God has a right to test us. God meant for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go through the fiery trial. Remember those three? And God delivered them out not before, but in the midst of the flames. And listen, when you get serious about God, I guarantee you, you're going to have opportunities to demonstrate the fact that you can take the refiner's fire because he is with you. He wants to teach us to trust him in those moments. And he wants us to demonstrate to, demonstrate to us that he can triumph in any kind of circumstance, any kind of situation. So how do we get through and not under? Number one, don't be surprised when these trials and sufferings come. Secondly, 
Our God-honoring response is this, determine to rejoice. Verses 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I can tell you for sure today that if you can stand in a, in a moment of deep pain and suffering and in your heart be rejoicing, God has greatly visited you with his amazing grace. Because all we know for sure is that the normal way of responding to tests and trials, that's not typically what we do. We don't usually rejoice. We grumble and we complain. We get under the pain of that suffering. But Peter is saying here, listen, there's a God behind what is going on in your world and in your life, and it's worth rejoicing about. And if in this moment all you... All you get is the pain part, and you don't get the rejoicing part. You're missing the beautiful part, the beautiful thing that God is seeking to do in you. I know it's hard for us to imagine this. We we have our nose to the grindstone so much. We're we're here in the struggles day to day, uh, and it's hard for us to kind of pull the curtain and look beyond and be stunned by the pervasive long-term glory that when you see it and know that it's real, every moment of pain and suffering will hardly be rememberable to you because that weight of glory will overwhelm the pain and suffering you're going through, the rejection, the tears, the sorrow that you've ever experienced. We believe in eternity that's unimaginable, And we believe that every moment of suffering is marching us to that glory. That's what Peter's saying here. And so we can get up every morning, even though it's going to be a hard day, and rejoice because we are deeply moved by a deep-seated belief in the glory that is to come, that Mount Zion is not just a figment of our imagination, but it's real, that heaven awaits us, and the glory of being with Christ And the glory of his kingdom is beyond imagining. That should get us up every morning. But Peter adds sweetness to sweetness when he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I tend to view suffering a little bit differently than Peter describes it here. If someone reviles and insults me as a believer, calls me a narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, homophobic, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping quack. I don't intend to say, man, am I ever blessed. Oh, no, I, I, have, I, I don't like that in my life. But Peter repeats what he wrote earlier in chapter 3 and verse 14. If you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And you know why? Because you have something others can only wish for, an undeniable presence of God in your life. And so when that rejection happens, it's because the Spirit of God is alive in me that that I can rejoice, that he's revealing himself to me in my thoughts and in my actions. What a glorious thing that is. And that should motivate every one of us. You ought to be able to say, oh, if just for once the glory of God would be seen through me where I work. If only once my children could see the glory of Christ in me. 
If only once my neighbors would see the glory of Christ in my life. If only once a watching world around me would see the glory of Christ. That would be worth all of the suffering and all the pain. So how do we go through it and not be under it? We rejoice because of the glory that awaits us and what God is doing through the suffering. Number three, God our response is this. Keep your suffering pure. Notice what he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler, which he's basically saying, that's not what you should be allowing to cause your pain and suffering. It's not sinful behavior uh, and doing your thing and, and suffering because of it. It's because you're suffering because you're doing the right thing for the glory of Christ. I'm convinced that Peter is showing his pastoral heart here. He understands how our heart works. The moments of suffering are often moments of spiritual vulnerability. I'm sure as I could think at least that Peter was probably thinking back to that time after Jesus was arrested and he was by a little courtyard and there was a little girl that says, you're one of his, aren't you? And he denied him three times. Spiritual vulnerability when there are moments of pain and emotional loss as Peter experienced in that moment. When we're tempted to wonder if our obedience is really worth it, why are we working so hard to please God and is this what I get? It's like Psalm 73, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked for there is no pain in their death and their belly is fat and there are no trouble like other people, nor are they tormented together with the rest of mankind. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and I wash my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and punished every morning. When I thought of understanding this, it was troublesome in my sight until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Peter wants us to understand that this kind of suffering is not suffering because you've done wrong or done evil. And when we do suffer because we've done wrong, we usually add trouble to our own trouble. And that is we lash out in anger and mistreat the people around us who would be there to support and comfort us. And so Peter is calling us here to make sure that we are suffering not because of evil doing, but because of doing what is right. You say, well... I've never done these things that Peter's talking about. I, I'm not a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. Or, uh, I may, may meddle once in a while, but I just don't do those things. Well, listen, remember this. These sins are first sins of the heart before they're sins of the hand. So let me ask you this morning, are you committed to a life that pleases your Savior no matter what? Does your obedience weaken in moments of difficulty? When you're going through trials, do you find it hard to come and worship with God's people? To open your Bible and read and pray? Keep your heart pure. That's one way we get through and never get under. Number four, God-honoring response is this. Don't give way to shame. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter is very zealous here to remind people 
that he is ministering to, where they get their identity from. It's not from anything that they have uh, or anything of their personality or their riches or their treasures or their positions in life. No, it's because they have been united with Christ as their Savior and Lord. Don't be shopping around for your identity. Praise God that you have been freed of that by His grace, that your heart is at rest, that you know who you are in Christ, that you know who God is, and you know your acceptance before a holy God because of your faith in Christ who paid in full the debt of your sins. Jesus said, though all men forsake me, yet I'm not alone, for my heavenly Father is with me. I believe this verse about not being ashamed but giving glory to God is probably the key verse in this passage. The wheels come off and uh, the wagon turns over. It doesn't look like you're going to go any further. Can you glorify God in the midst of that kind of difficulty? Will you still keep singing about Zion Will you be able to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope? Can you say with Job, God has given, God has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Peter's saying here. A triumphant Christian is one who is suffering, but is not ashamed of that suffering but is rather glorifying God. Now, I've given you three things in your outline here to help you, three A's to remember this, that will allow you to always go through and not get under. Number one, he is alive, so he knows what's happening in your life. Do you ever think about when you come to that dead-end trial, that that thing that just keeps happening over and over in your life, and you think, I'm never going to get through this? God knows all about it. He's alive. So he knows what's happening in your life. He knows how you're thinking. He knows your emotions, your feelings. And secondly, he's adequate. He is more than enough to get you through and keep you from going under. And number three, he's allowing it for a purpose, a holy purpose. So remember these three things as you go through times when you feel perhaps ashamed of identifying yourself as a follower of Christ in this fallen world. He's alive, he's adequate, and he's allowing it. We may not understand it, but he's going to use it for a good purpose in our life. Remember Paul and Silas in Philippi? They had seen the vision of the man of Macedonia. Come over and help us. And when he got there, there was no man, but there was a woman. Remember Lydia, the seller of purple? That's who he met. That was one of his first converts. And it wasn't long until, as typical for Paul and Silas, uh, the authorities uh, ruling Philippi were not happy with what was happening in Paul and Silas's ministry, and they, they arrested them. They publicly whipped them in the square. Their backs were gaping wounds. They were thrown into the inner depths of a dungeon prison. And the one thing I love about this that a lot of people leave out is that that beating happened in the middle of the day And it wasn't until midnight that they started to sing. Sometimes it takes a while for us to have the sting of the trials that have hit us sort of dissipate till we can open our mouths and our minds and our lips and our lungs and actually sing praises to God in the midst of our pain. 
There are two things we learn about this. Number one, when they started to sing, God started to work. And listen, folks, in the midst of our trials, we need to sing because God will work if we're rejoicing in our trial. And the second thing is when they started to sing, evangelism took place. After the earthquake, the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And he and all his household were born again. Listen, folks, the testimony the world wants to see, uh, needs to see around us is that when we go through our trials, we don't go under. We get through with God's help. And we rejoice because he's alive and he's adequate and he's allowing it for a purpose. Peter and Paul and other apostles, when they were suffering, they were joyful Christians. They were glorifying Christ in the midst of it all. And we need to face our challenges following that same pattern. That's how we always get through and never get under. Notice number five. Consider God's discipline. For if it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's a sobering verse, friends. It's time for discipline to begin in the house of God. Now, this word that he uses here for judgment, as it's rendered in most texts, is not talking about condemnation for our sins. It's rather nuanced as discipline, where we as followers of God have gone off the, the, the holy path and we're, we're doing some things that we shouldn't be doing. We know we shouldn't be doing them. And God disciplines us. A holy God longs for his people to be holy. And so that holy God will often visit his people with discipline. Paul instructed the Corinthian believers regarding the proper observance of the Lord's Supper, which we will suffer, uh, observe today. I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, but he wrote, examine yourselves to see if there's any aroma, aroma of offense in your life, because a person who doesn't judge himself eats and drinks judgment unto himself. If we would examine ourselves, then we wouldn't be judged by God. Judging there, I think, means disciplined by God. God allows us uh, as believers, to judge things in our lives that are not right. And when we do, we can take communion and we are right with God. If we don't, God says, I'm going to have to discipline you a little bit in order to you come back in line. If people who have now been made righteous by Christ are in need of God's discipline, What's going to happen to the ungodly around us? It's sobering to think about, isn't it? And Bible, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So that's how we get through it and not under it. We consider God's discipline. And notice the last one. We rest as we work. He says here, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We often miss that last phrase, don't we? While doing good. The one who holds the world together holds you by his grace. The one who owns all things has power to supply all you need to go through your trials. He's calling you to go through them, trusting in him. 
And notice, if you would, for a moment, the nervousness, the anxiety that often comes into your mind as you go through times of suffering. Will you make it through? Will you have what it takes? How will this turn out? What's going to happen? And Peter says, in that moment, it's very important not to forget that our hope is not in figuring it all out. It's not in finding rest through our own understanding. Our hope is in one person only, our creator, savior, who holds all things in his hand, who rules all things by his power, and who also has promised to supply everything we need. Now, Peter says, because you can rest in that, get busy. Don't waste your time while you're suffering, figuring out how you, things you can't figure out. Don't waste your time in paralysis by analysis, because you know you can rest in your Savior. You can rest in God, who rules over everything. And you can give yourself now, even in the midst of your suffering, to the good work that he's called you to do. And that will benefit those around you and give a, a warm and wonderful signal to those who are yet outside the kingdom of God. Listen, people who are suffering God's way are busy people. Busyness for the kingdom of God is a sign that you have gotten it right. You're getting, it, you're getting through. And God's grace is freeing you from anxiety, from doubt, and the sin of despair. And God's grace is propelling you into the best kind of busyness, busyness for the kingdom of God. So don't be surprised. Determine to rejoice. Keep your suffering pure Don't give way to shame. Consider God's discipline and rest as you work. Bottom line is this. Expect trials. Use trials. Glorify God with trials. So expect trials. Use trials. Glorify God with trials. C.S. Lewis, speaking of great theologians, uh, I love those comments by the children, didn't you? Uh, uh, he once was an atheist, as we know, but came to faith in Christ and became a great apologetic, apologetic, whatever that word is, uh, uh, for the Christian faith. And this is, this is what happened to him one time. He was asked the question, why do the righteous suffer? And I loved his answer. Why not? They're the only ones who can take it. And he's exactly right, isn't he? And with that, we're going to move into communion this morning.